Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm speaking to Richard Pryor, a speaker and author whose 27-year-old son died suddenly in 2015, just six weeks after a family beach vacation. We're talking about taking the butterflies and rainbows out of grief, and what happens when people think they own the rights to your grief. Also this week, I'm answering a listener email about starting to feel normal again after a loss occurs. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and coach who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Just a reminder that if you'd like to join me for live grief support beyond this show, I host regular meetups with my Patreon supporters. Over on Patreon, you can pledge as little as $1 per month to support Coming Back and join me and other listeners of this show for conversation and truth-telling about the reality of living with loss. Thank you so much to everyone who joined me this past Monday, June 24th, where we talked about the vocabulary of grief, how it's grown in the past 20 years or so, and what it's like when people decide to host a grief memorial for your dead person uh, without your input, which, um, ouch. Just a special note for all of my Patreon supporters that Google has switched its, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? platform. Google has switched its meeting platform from Google Hangouts, where we've usually been meeting, to Google Meet for our grief support chats. This was a total surprise to me on Monday, and I am sure to so many of you too who tried to join me in our usual chat room on June 24th. So if for some reason you were unable to join the Google Meets room on Monday, I am hosting another grief support group in July, in addition to the one that I already had planned. So I'll be hosting two live grief support groups in the month of July. There There will be one on July 29th at 8 p.m. Central, which I've already planned. That one's already been set in stone. And another one, this is the new one, on July 8th at 8 p.m. Central time, which I'm just announcing today. So if you'd like to get together after the 4th of July holiday weekend and spend some time with me, I would love to see you there on July 8th. So grief growers, this is a wonderful time to join Patreon because thanks to Google's snafu and my uh, (laughs) lack of lack of researching there, uh, you get two invitations to private grief support groups with me just this month. And you can always find the link to pledge and join us, which is patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia in the show notes. So this week, I received a lovely email from a woman I had the pleasure of meeting in person a few weeks ago here in Chicago. 
I won't get into too much detail about her life or her story, but it seemed to be divine happenstance that we met because her grief story is very, very, very similar to mine. Just this spring, she's graduating from college and her mom died just six months ago. If you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know I also lost my mom six months before my graduation from college in 2014. So I really felt for this woman, and I'm so glad that we met because this was the first time I've been able to look somebody in the eyes and say, this is almost my story exactly. I was standing right where you're standing right now, five years ago. I've been here and I remember it vividly and I am so fucking sorry. I'm alive now and you're alive now and just being alive right now is so hard. Me too. And for as much as grief is a universal experience, and I can empathize with all losses because I've experienced one of my own and because I host this show and host the group and everything like that, it makes it all so personal and so, so connecting when the details of the loss, the circumstances surrounding the loss match up. It's just like moving degrees closer even. So this woman and I parted ways, and I'm sure we'll bump into each other again because we're in the same city, but just this week she sent me an email with a really thoughtful question, and I want to share my answer with you today, grief growers. She wrote, I was wondering if there was a point for you when things started to feel a little less surreal and more like some kind of normal life. And I love how she phrased this because she's not asking, when will I get back to normal? She's asking, when will the weirdness of all of this right now wear off? When will the surreal aspect of grief fade away in some semblance of normal life resume? And grief growers, for as hard of a question as this is, I think it's the right question to ask. Not because there's a set timeline for the tipping point of surreal to new normal life, but because the expectation is not, when will this go away? It's, when will I feel like I've adjusted to this? When will the rawness and the newness and the novelty of it lessen? When will I feel like my loss has been incorporated into the larger picture of my life? And that's the right question to ask. I mean, I've got to admit, it's a very good question. And let me level with you. Loss doesn't ever feel totally incorporated or totally part of the picture of your life or totally like the truth of your reality. Some part of loss is always like that last bag you're trying to stick into the trunk before a really big road trip. Some part of it always pokes out and refuses to fit into the trunk, into the picture, into the box. Some part of it always kind of jabs out. It's like, I really wish that didn't belong there. I can't fully shut the door on this experience. It's not a whole pretty picture. It's um, some part of it's always jutting out. Loss is always an awkward um, part of your life that needs to be navigated and like stepped around. But I'll tell you, for me and my experience, there was a point in time that I can point to where after a while, I learned how to live alongside my loss. And I want to read you my response to her. I wrote, If I had to put a definitive point on feeling less surreal slash tilting to normal, it would be a year and a half. My mom died in December of 2013, and for me, I started to come back to the world again around mid-2015. Most of this is measured by my memory, so how much I can recall and retain about my life at that time. So mid-2015 is when color started to get vivid again, conversation stuck in my brain instead of sliding off like Teflon, and I could feel my feet on the ground while I was walking. 
By contrast, my life in the first year and a half after losing my mom was a blacked out blur. There are whole chunks of my timeline that I don't remember. There are places I went, people I saw, things I did that I don't recall. Uh, and everything just felt in that surreal space. I think I was processing a lot of shock and my brain was using a lot of my energy and reserves simply to keep me going every day. A year and a half is also significant to me because that's when I feel like I found practices that resonated with me in my grief. After trying a lot of things on, I landed on some coping tools that worked. So things like reading books, listening to podcasts, grief recovery, Reiki, meditation, And I was also working with a nutritionist to heal my body after becoming physically ill after my mom's death. Things didn't necessarily get better in a linear way from that point on, but a year and a half is the place that I can point to where I really started to feel conscious again. There's a page on my website where I write, if this is my life, let me make the best of it. And this idea very much feels like a radical acceptance to me, as if I'm staring God or the universe or whoever is running the show in the face and shouting, if this is what you're going to dish out, if this loss is what you've handed me, then you'd better help me handle it day to day. And a year and a half is when I felt like I could have or create something solid for myself to stand on again. I was handling it from day to day. I'm not sure if this is helpful to you. Time is such a wonky and subjective thing in grief. And it's not like I don't still have my days where I just overflow with missing my mom. There's so much that she's not here for. I've become a whole nother person and I wonder if she would like and love what I've evolved into. But I acknowledge too that a huge part of my evolution could not have happened without her death. I'm not grateful for it by any means, but I do recognize it as the life-changing catalyst that it is. So there you have it, grief growers. If you have ever wanted to know the answer to that question from me of when life started to tip from the surreal into something that felt like normal, um, that's the story of my experience. And I know everybody's story and experience is different. So this is not exactly a tool or a takeaway for the top of the show today, but an answer to a question, my answer for when the world started to feel less weird and more like I had a foundation coming back. If you're still in the surreal place, I wish you so much love. I remember wearing those shoes and those glasses and being behind that thick pane of grief glass looking in at the world. I remember being there. If you're entering or in what a lot of people like to call the quote-unquote new normal place, I wish you so much love there too. It is okay for this life to still feel foreign and totally unwelcome and like that last bag sticking out of the trunk of the car. Loss always just kind of sticks out from your story and your timeline. That really never goes away. But slash and it is okay for you to be finding footing again. It's okay to develop routines and habits and practices again. You don't always have to be in a state of chaos or weirdness or surrealness to continually confirm the fact that you have lost and are grieving. It's okay that life is returning to some semblance of normal. This week in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of the show, I'm asking when did life start to feel less surreal and more like some semblance of normal after a loss? I want to know when your life tilted from numbness to feeling solid or from whirlwind to more like a routine. So if you'd like to join the conversation, join us by searching Grief Growers Garden on Facebook and finding our group. 
I would love to see you there. Next up, I'm talking to Richard Pryor, whose 27-year-old son Richie was here one day and gone the next. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Richard Pryor lives in Plymouth, Massachusetts, on the beach with his wife and three dogs, otherwise known as the Gucci Boys. (laughs) Richard is an author and transformational dad coach who found his purpose in life after his son passed away three and a half years ago. His mission is to support people struggling with grief and provide coaching and inspiration to dads that feel disconnected from their spouse, their children, and their true selves. You can find Richard next at the Bereaved Parents of the USA Annual Gathering, which is August 2nd through 4th in St. Louis, Missouri. Richie, welcome to Coming Back. I am delighted to have you here to share your story of loss, but also your story of coming back. If you could please, whenever you're ready, uh, share your story with us today. Well, thank you so much, Shelby, for having me on the show. So my story of loss, um, back in 2015, my wife and I and our two boys, Richie and Matthew, went on a 25th wedding anniversary uh, that renewed our vows in Hawaii in May 26th of 2015. Amazing time, amazing trip. We just had built so many memories there. Little did we know six weeks later, we would come home and uh, we'd lose one of our sons. And... Um, so we got home from our trip and, you know, things went along just how they, how they were. We had a great father's day. And then on the uh, evening of July 4th, my son had went out with his friends and my other son to a party. And um, the next day, my son wasn't, res- my oldest son, Richie, wasn't responding to any calls or texts. So my youngest son went over his house to check on him. And um, he found him passed away in his sleep. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I got the call and uh, we just, we couldn't believe it. You know, there was something wrong. And I'll just, I'll never forget that, that day and my wife screaming and us just, we didn't know, we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't believe what was going on. And from that point on, the next several months to a year and a half, two years was was pretty much a lot. We were we were lost, you know. We were we were going through life and um, in shock for most of the time, and we just we couldn't find a way out. We were just stuck in the grief, stuck in it, and. And we were kind of feeding off each other. So we weren't kind of moving forward. We were kind of, we would kind of sit 
and talk about the past, about Richie and how bad we missed him and how, how a piece of a heart was tor- torn out of us torn out without a moment's notice with no notice no goodbyes and we kind of stayed that way for a long time a long time every day crying reminiscing the triggers of grief i want to explore this idea of stuckness this is something that's started coming up as a word to describe my own grief where i was but then there's this idea of being stuck together um, like literally stuck together in the same place, but also being in a place of stuckness as a group. Um, and I wonder, you know, a lot of the world looks at this, this idea of being stuck and sees it as a bad thing. But I wonder if being in a place of stuckness, especially after the loss of your son, was like, this is the opportunity or the opening that we have to grieve together, cry together, sit together, be together. And for as much as it feels like the cyclical, I'm going deeper and deeper and marinating in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of processing happens there as well. Our brains are literally integrating. Holy crap. This is what just happened. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I really, I really never thought of it that way and put that positive spin on it, which I real I love. Um, yeah, we, we were together and we, we were just processing it together. But I believe, you know, that was great in the beginning. But as, as time moved on, we weren't moving forward. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We, we weren't moving forward. We were kind of caught in this loop. I like to call it a loop of grief where we were doing the same thing. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. We were doing the same thing every day and we weren't changing anything to help us start healing. Yeah. I I, I want to ask, like, what was it that kind of opened your eyes to, wow, I haven't done anything different in weeks, months? So it, it was, it was so really surrounded. I would come home and my wife would come home. We'd get together and we would just drink and cry, drink and cry, drink and cry. And it got to a point where it's like, okay, I'm bringing. So, and then we come to the point where I had a, a decent day. Like maybe I smiled that day and I would come home and she would be, you know, at a negative 10 on the grief scale really depressed and I would bring my down myself down to her level and vice versa. So she may be having a somewhat decent day, maybe have a little bit of happiness. And I would come in and say, I, I heard a song on the radio and I would just pound her back down into the ground. So we were keeping ourselves down. If, if that makes sense. It does. And I get this visual instantly of like, two people trying to carry a really heavy rock together and then they just keep passing it back and forth. <laughs> Perfect uh, analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect analogy. <laughs> and that's cool. what we were doing. And, and it's like, nobody was there to say, cause I go, I go through this in my book. Nobody was there to say, Hey, you guys aren't helping yourself at all by doing this. And this went on for about almost over a year, year and a half, year and a half that went on to the point where, 
I started doing things that made me uncomfortable. So what I did is I signed up for a seminar that was totally out of character for me. I spent a lot of money and the presenter said two things. What you focus on and the meaning you give things is how you live your life. And that struck me in that moment is like, okay, what was I focusing on? I was focusing on all the bad things. I put away all those beautiful memories. I had my son for 27 years. Not a lot of parents can say that when they lose children young, you know, that they don't have that, that opportunity, that gift. So I was focusing on all the negative stuff. And then the meaning I was given, it was, oh, my God, you know, look at what God did to me. You know, I must have did something bad in this world, bad in a previous life to have deserved this. I must have deserved this. So once I started rethinking the focus and the meaning I had and flipped it around saying, okay, instead of focusing on me and what, what's hurting me, how can I focus on something higher, a higher, a higher calling? You know, um, how can I focus on the good things? Like, oh my God, 27 years, we traveled the world. We had so much fun together, so much fun. And as soon as I started flipping that, Slowly, one step at a time, I started changing. I started changing myself and I started getting stronger. And then the focus came where I was like, let me focus, focus on not me anymore, because I was being selfish. I was focusing on me. Poor me, poor me. I started thinking about my wife and my other son more. And then the meaning, the meaning was the key because the meaning I was given it was just. He died and that's it. I wasn't given any, any, any thought to it. And then I said to myself, wait a minute. What about if the meaning is that I'm supposed to be doing something really important with this? And that's when I said to myself, the meaning is I'm supposed to use my son's loss as a tool, as a gift to go out and help others that are struggling with grief. And that's kind of how I made that that transition. And from there, it just it just started snowballing. And I guess the biggest thing that I did as I was going through this this change, I like to call it a change of identity that we go to when we go through because I became a new person, you know, at, on this journey. I wasn't the person that I was the day before, or even you know before my son passed. I was I was turning into this this different person. And who had different beliefs. And, you know, I got this feeling that I, I really wanted to, to help others. It was a burning, burning feeling. And then I thought to myself, I can't keep coming home to my wife and us doing this thing. So I reached out and did what men never do. Not many men that I know anyway, is that I went and found a, I found help for myself. I went and found a therapist. There's so much that's coming up for me here uh, related to like grief myths to previous episodes of coming back. The thing that's coming up the most clearly is an episode we did, I think back in season two of coming back and the title of the episode, it was with Harriet Cabelli and the title of the episode was literally from why me to a why to live for. Mm. And it, um, this question of, what if, what if his life had meaning? What if 
I'm supposed to use this as a tool. What if this can propel me forward instead of sink me backwards? Like the voice of what if, and this is something I use with my coaching clients as well. What if is like, we can use it as a really good friend to us, or what if can be our absolute worst enemy. And it's interesting um, that you went to this seminar so out of character for you, heard this one idea and you're like, this is what's going to get the ball rolling. And maybe you didn't even know it like in the moment, but as you started to follow it and this concept uh, that we've spoken about on previous podcasts of grief being like an involuntary scavenger hunt, we are constantly picking things up and putting things down and does this fit anymore? And you kind of start to follow the trail into the woods and see, does this fit my new life? Um, is is such a great visual for this because you like you went to a seminar one time, heard this one idea, and all of a sudden it was the I get the this um, visual of like the Indiana Jones booby trap, that big rock that just starts rolling yeah. and coming towards you and you can't even stop it. Like that's what kicks off that momentum, but it's something so teeny tiny. Uh, in the very beginning days of coming back, I used to ask people what their seed was, like what the small teeny like tiny tiny voice idea was that started that road to coming back. And this is just such a perfect visual of it. Um, and I literally wrote that down, what you focus on and the meaning that you give your life. And what's interesting about this is that this is something that comes up with grievers is like people outside of us can't tell us what the meaning is. It's insulting when they do. And it's yeah. really hard because so many people around us, like even if they get there before us, even if we end up coming to the same conclusions, if they tell it to us, it doesn't resonate. But if we get there ourselves, you're like, I've decided on my own meaning, then it's something that we've autonomously chosen in our grief. I, I agree 100%. And I think that comes from, for the most part, from us as human beings want to fix everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fixing. It's like I wanted to fix, you know, before, as I was going through, before I went to that seminar, I was like, I needed a fix as a husband, as a man. I needed to fix my wife. I needed to fix my son. And I didn't understand that time that I couldn't fix them. The only way they would fix everything is if my son came back to life. Yeah. And, and until I realized that, it just, it, it didn't make sense. And I, I was just stirring in my own stuff. It was just incredible how, how as, as men were raised to, to, to hide our feelings and hide our emotions. And I remember that doing that to my kids when they were younger. They fell down. Hey, just get up and brush it up. It'll be all right. So when we, when, we're, when we go through this, you know, on this journey of grief, as a man, it's like nobody wants to cry or, or share their, their heartaches, their anger, their frustrations with anybody else. They want to keep it inside. And if the only person they want to share with is, is their spouse, that's not helping anyone, I don't believe. Well, yeah, and it goes back to that visual of I'm going to pass you the heavy rock and then you can pass it back to me. <laughs> um, and I'm laughing, but oh my gosh, to be in this process with a spouse or with a, a loved one, uh, someone that's intimately close to you is really exhausting. It's like, I just had the big heavy rock and now you're going to hand it back to me. Like I'm, and there's, there's things like resentment that come in. There's exhaustion. There's like, aren't we supposed to do something with this besides pass it back and forth to each other? And I'm so curious about this idea that you speak of, of, of being a man who's grieving and wanting to be a fixer, because I think society in general 
is made up of fixers, especially for things that don't feel good, like the three ads, the mad, bad, and sad. We just want to fix it. Um, but but especially as someone who identifies as a male and a husband and, and a provider for your family, I should be able to, to fix this. I taught my kids when they were little to just like, you know, it doesn't hurt as much as you think it does, you know, dust off your shorts, you're going to be fine. Um, but it's not, uh, somehow that doesn't translate to grief and that's quite a revelation. And so I'm wondering how you reckoned with that former identity. You talk about taking a new identity into being someone who not only seeks out therapy, which is kind of grief at an internal level, but now as someone who does grief as a man so publicly. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but the only way I could do this, Shelby, is is get my word out there or my message is to be public about it and and tell people about it because people don't want to talk about grief. You know, when I lost my son, no, everybody wants to run away. You know, as soon as they hear, you know, I lost a child, it's like they they run for the hills. I don't know whether they think it's catchy or not, but I saw it as that my wife had our had our son carried him for nine months he had a different relationship with him than i did and then my other son that was his brother they were best friends so he had a different relationship and then i had my own relationship with my son we were best friends he was my son we did so much good fun stuff together how can i think i can help somebody and fix somebody when I don't really understand their world. Mm. I may know a little bit about it. I may know a little bit, yeah, they had a loss, but I have no idea what's going on in between their ears. So how can I think I can offer them solutions? Like you said, the, the person said to you that, um, you know, want to fix everything, sad, bad, and mad. Mm-hmm. I have no idea, you know, walking in my shoes, understanding my world, what I'm going through because we all have different life experiences and how we were raised, uh, you know, how we were brought up. It's just, it's impossible to know what somebody else is thinking, especially when, when you're dealing with the loss. And that brings up something that, um, that I don't know that I've ever phrased this way before, but when people tell us what to do with our grief or tell us what our grief means. It's like they possess or think they possess the rights to our grief or to our experience. And I've never phrased it that way before. I'm getting chills right now because that, um, just that notion of someone having the right, the audacity, the ownership over our experience, even better than we do. And we're like, we live in this body. I'm living this life. This experience, like you said, between my ears is mine. So a lot of that um, disarming that happens from the people around us or quote unquote, what looks like support uh, is really people overstepping their bounds going somewhere where they have no right to go fixing things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I cover that in my book. It's who's got your back. I call it. And that's uh, some people you're better off having in your life and some people you're better off having out of your life. I know it's harsh to say, but I found that getting those people with that bad energy, the people that were trying to tell me, oh, one one of my best friends for 25 years told somebody else that it's been a year, I should have been over it by now. Right? Right? So something like that hits you really deep. It's like, how could you even say something like that? 
And I learned, you know, I found a better place by, you know, separating myself from those people. Now my world is, it's amazing. It's amazing. I want to get into your book because this is, I mean, this is even another process. It's like first the seminar, then therapy, then public grief work and a book also on top of it. And this is just getting your grief more and more into public spaces and your stories gets more and more vulnerable through each of these modalities and mediums. So I guess why a book? What, first of all, what is the book? The book is is called Warriors of Life, Conquering Grief and Battling Your Way Back to Happiness. So why the book? Well, so at that same seminar, I met my publisher. (laughs) So so that seminar gave me a a lot of great gifts. And why the book? I read so many books. I'm looking at them right now. I have like 30 books on my desk and I'm so, I'm going to be writing to each author and telling them how much, how thankful I am for each one of their books. Cause each one I took something from, but what I wanted to give back to the world was a book that was not only a book, it was a, it was a workbook. It, it gave them, it gives the reader some exercises to do at each end of each chapter and just help them on their journey. And like I said, I don't know what any, I don't know what anybody else is thinking, where they are in their journey. And I'm not offering a silver bullet to fix it because that's impossible, but I'm offering some, some options, some resources, some life skills to use in order to help them maybe move a little bit forward. Because when my wife and I, when we lost Richie, we had absolutely no resources. After, after the wake, all the friends disappeared. Nobody called us. We were kind of left alone on our own little island. And we had to wait five months for a hospice uh, parents' bereavement group. And that only lasted eight weeks. So we were just like, we were left it up to our own selves to try to move forward, get ourselves out of that, that grief and start, start the healing process. So that's kind of why I wrote the book. Yeah, it sounds like it's for that time when you feel like, wow, I've been left on my own with this. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about it, I didn't really realize that because the first year and a half, I was, the doctors were using me as a guinea pig for all kinds of antidepressants, so on and so forth, and and my drinking. So it was like, Half of the time, I didn't know whether I was coming, whether I was going. So I don't really know that point, um, you know, in time where I thought that I needed to 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 write that book. I want to um, ask about this concept too of like warriors of life battling your way back, because a lot of uh, grief literature, as many grief growers and listeners of the podcast will know, has a lot of butterflies and clouds and rainbows and like all this other stuff on the covers of the book where we're like we're gonna do battle with this thing which is such a different energy than making peace with loss which i mean has its time and place and granted i've had my own exploratory adventures with the softer side of grief but there's also this like i mean even going back to the the rock allegory earlier of like there's this gritty get some dirt under your fingernails activity that needs to happen with grief too and i think you've picked up on that 
Yeah, and that's what it was, Shelby. I didn't. I know when I read all my books and looking at it, they all have butterflies and clouds <laughs> and rainbows and unicorns and and pretty little cats. No, no cats. But and I was just like saying that it was. I felt, you know, when when I was in the the trenches and the darkness of the grief, you know, that first year and a half that I was depressed, angry, sad, frustrated, overwhelmed, you name it, I felt it. And I just didn't want to even live anymore. At some some days, I didn't want to live anymore. If I didn't get out of bed or if a, fl- a plane fell out of the sky and landed on me, that wouldn't have been the worst thing. So that's why I thought that there's no way that a butterfly is going to carry me out of this. <laughs> I, <laughs> you look strong enough, buddy. <laughs> right. I have to change my identity, change my persona, become a superhero, and do whatever it takes to get myself moving forward. Because I know, you know, when we're all stuck in this grief and it's it's so hard, but but we still have to live. I still, and, and the reason I'm doing all this stuff, because I want to make my son proud, because I like to tell people, I can have two conversations because I believe that I'll be connected with my son, you know, wherever that is, wherever you want to call it, in the next life, the next realm, heaven, whatever you want to call it. I believe I'm going to be with him again and I can have one of two conversations the first one would be dad i gave you this opportunity and you blew it you wasted your life you were depressed sad you made everybody else around you miserable and you didn't live a life worth living or two dad you did it you got the sign you got the message you kicked serious butt you helped thousands and thousands of people get through their grief, through their challenges in life. And that's what I wanted for you. And that's what gets, keeps me going every day. That conversation. That's like a serious life mission right there. Like that's a lot of religious texts will use the word charge. Like you've been charged with this mm-hmm. mission. Like that's yeah. what's coming up for me right now. It's like, this is even beyond just you and your son. Like there's something even larger at work here. Yeah. See that, that meaning that I talked about, it's getting better and better as time goes on. But that was kind of how I originally thought of that was that I'm going to see him again someday. And I want to make sure he's proud of me because I would not want him to say, dad, you just wasted all that time there. That kind of reminds me as you were first telling your story about taking this trip uh, for your 25th wedding anniversary and the renewal of vows happened right around this time. We're recording this episode on May 28th uh, and this trip happened around the 26th. And then there's kind of this kickstart of then six weeks later, X, Y, Z. So I wonder if you have a favorite memory that includes Richie from that trip that you'd like to share with us here on the show. Yeah. Oh, geez. There, there was so many of them, but it was, we just celebrated our wedding anniversary in Newport, Rhode Island past Saturday. And my, the face, our Facebook feeds shows all the pictures from, you know, four years ago when we, uh, when we renewed our vows. I think, you know, the funniest thing was just, you know, being on the beach, all four of us, and we were all dressed in blues and uh, white, white short shorts with the lays on us. And just, uh, we were all holding hands. And my wife says, first of all, you guys are going to pick me up. 
and we're going to take a picture like that, you three holding me, and then we're all going to walk into the ocean together. And those those memories really stuck with me. And the pictures we have hanging on our wall right now, big, big frame, framed, uh, it's like art. And just looking at those pictures, it just it, it puts a smile on our faces. Makes us so happy that we did that, that we had that opportunity. And when I think about, you know, the focus, when I talked about that, that's the stuff I focus on now. I don't focus on the loss. I focus on the time that we had with him and those amazing memories and laughs we shared for those 27 years. And I think that's such a validation too, because oftentimes when somebody we love dies, there's almost a compulsion to take them down off the walls. Like they don't get a place anymore because they're not alive. And I'm like, no, no, leave them on the walls, make a place for them, make them art. I know. Yeah. You know what, Shelby? I, we, we didn't do that. We, we always wanted him front and center, but there were people that they can't cope with that. I mean, <laughs> if I had two or three hours, I, I could spend talking with you about this, but like my wife can't, um, after Richie passed, I had just like two months before that I had taken all of our old, you know, VHS tapes and recordings when he was, you know, a baby and I had put them on digital. So I would spend, you know, a whole weekend sitting down in the basement, watching those videos over and over, crying and crying, looking through the books. And I was surrounding myself with that stuff. And my wife, she says, don't even, I don't even want to see anything like that. So like I said, different people just have different ways of processing. But that one thing that I just, I could never do is just forget about not seeing his picture, his smile. God, that's just. That would break my heart even more, you know, forgetting about him or, or doing something that would, you know, dishonor his memory that he didn't even exist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that um, that you have permission to change your mind on, too. I know immediately after my mom died, uh, I had, like, I pretty much set up, like, a shrine for her on my dresser. <laughs> I had this... Um, this picture in a frame with a hinge on it. And so you could put two pictures in it and kind of made a V shape when it set on the dresser. Um, and I had two pictures of her in there. And then I had pictures of her on my phone and at my computer and like all this other stuff. And I literally surrounded myself with things that were hers. And it was kind of like this way to insulate myself. Mm -hmm. um, and as I've gotten older and moved into different spaces, like she remains, but now I think I'm looking around my room right now as we're speaking, I think I only have one picture of her. And it's above my bed and it's kind of tucked away in a far corner. So if you walk into my room, you wouldn't notice it. Whereas before she was like front and center. <laughs> yeah. um, and she was just there because I needed her to be there in that way. That's right. And that's um, right. That's yeah. the only way we feel their presence is, is seeing their picture. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I do I do a lot of work with mediums and shamans. So I, I know he's with me. I don't know whether other people believe that, that stuff or not. But I believe he's always with me. And just having a, having a picture around just to look at and smile and it makes me feel good. Yeah. And that's, I think what we're, what we're chasing, what we're after in grief is like, if I can just slowly make a connect, a collection of these things that make me feel good, maybe I can either drown out some of the pain or we can tip the scales a little bit. Um, into our favor. So we're not in these really, really dark places carrying those big rocks again. Yeah, and you know what you know what I think about that. I, I it does. It, it happens. It takes time, 
but I do think you have those moments where that big rock comes back. <laughs> oh, comes sure. Back. You carry and it's like, oh my God, it's back. And those, you know, those triggers and you don't know when it's coming, where it's coming from, but if it hits you, but what now I find is that I can get back to even pretty quickly as before it would take me God days, weeks, you know, if I had a trigger now it's, you know, maybe an hour a day at the most, you know, if it's a really bad trigger, like I lost a friend a couple of weeks ago, 64 years old, one of my best friends out of the blue. And that was, that brought back all the memories, all the memories quickly. Yeah. And in those moments, it's something where I have to look myself in the mirror and be like, of course you would feel this way. Of course the rock would come back and not even in like a mean or a spiteful way, but like, yeah, you're continuing to be alive and have the human experience of of living and, and dying. So like, of course the triggers would come back and of course the big rock would come back and just like, it's gone away before. And so there has to be some bizarre measure of faith that it's going to go away again. <laughs> um, it's so true. And it's acknowledging, yeah. acknowledging those emotions when they come up and not burying them and, and trying to ignore them. Just say, wow, yeah, that was a trigger. I'm sad right now. And um, just let it be and, and, and let it pass. It just, but it's like you said, it's being alive. It's, it's feeling those, those emotions. If you had one piece of wisdom that you could say to your grieving self, like immediately after the loss of your son, that your grieving self could hear and absorb, what would that be? that's such a good question <laughs> i would say don't try to fix other people mm. yeah that's that's one thing i'm really taking taken away from this is that you can't fix it because it's the way you fix it would be for him to come back and that's not going to happen so let people be let them process their grief just let them know that you're there to support them and you love them and that's it. And you don't have to be anything else either. Yeah. And that's one of the funniest things. Like my book, I, I recommend people that have family that have, you know, they have losses in their family that they read the book because it's some tips in there for them as well as to that's all we want is somebody to listen to us. Just listen to me. Don't offer solutions. Just keep your mouth zipped quiet. And just listen to me. Let me talk. Let me rant. Let me vent. And just say, I'm here for you. That's it. That's perfect. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richie, I want to let people know where they can find your book, Warriors of Life, as well as where they can find you and all of your other work as well. They can find me at Richie, R-I-C-H-I-E, Pryor.com, P-R-Y-O-R.com as well as thewarriorsoflife.com. That's where you can find my book as well. And my wife and I will be at the Bereaved Parents of the USA conference in St. Louis, August 2nd through the 4th. We'll be doing workshops on relationships, and I'll be teaching uh, dads in a couple of workshops how to be warriors of life. That's perfect. And I do hope, Grief Growers, if you're in the area, that you go and say hi and tell Richie that you heard him on coming back. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're like, you know where I heard you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's always so nice to put a face with a name and people often meet people they see or hear on the show and they're like, wow, you look different than I thought you would. It's I would a, love it's that. a radio and anybody, thing. And if anybody comes to, to see me and says that, I got a special gift for you at the conference. Oh, I'm, well, I'm nervous about that. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what this is. I'm going to <laughs> I didn't say anything to Shelby about it. Yes. Nope, just... I have no idea. <laughs> So we will absolutely see what that turns out to be. So I hope at least one of you goes and tells me what that is. Yes. Um, very exciting. Richie, I am so delighted to have just shared space with you today as you've recounted the loss of your son, but also your process of coming back, this this tiny, tiny little getting the ball rolling that's expanded into this this book and this permission that you give other people, especially men, to become warriors of life and do battle with grief. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, F the butterflies. Like, That's we're right. going to do battle with no this. No butterflies thing. and rainbows here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on Coming Back. Thank you so much, Shelby. It was a pleasure. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Richard Pryor, who joined me to talk about grief and masculinity, the grief of passing that big rock back and forth, especially with a spouse, and what happens when people feel like they have the rights to your grief. Richard came back by going to therapy, keeping Richie's photos on the wall in his home, and recognizing that what he focused on helped him create the meaning that he gave his life. You can find a link to Richard's website where you can find his book called Warriors of Life in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support from me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Join me for two live grief support groups in July, one on Monday, July 8th, and the other on Monday, July 29th, both at 8 p.m. Central Time. Thank you so much this week to Kevin, who pledged to support the podcast on Patreon. You totally rock. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One-on-one grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. 
Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching.